Good morning. Welcome to Coastal Community Church. We're so glad that you guys have joined us online here. If you're joining us on Facebook, fantastic. Or on our website, mycoastal.org, or on our YouTube channel. We are so glad that you're here with us. My name is Andy Rock. I'm the pastor of our church. And we're in our office today, my office specifically. Um, and so I want to just welcome you here. Like we do every Sunday at church, I want to remind us who we are. Number one, we're a community that is defined by hope. There is hope beyond our brokenness. No matter what's happening in our world, no matter what's happening in our own lives, we have hope. And hope is the sure knowledge that Jesus is working for our good right now. Second, we believe that we are called to trust in our risen Savior. And Trust is a relationship word. It's where I am putting the weight of my heart and my life in Jesus' capable hands. Uh, it's not a feeling word. Um, it's, it's, an, it's a word filled with action, faith, and trust. It's me practically moving forward in my life, trusting that God indeed has me, my finances, my body, my health, whether or not I have enough toilet paper this week. Jesus has got us. Lastly, we're called to bring restoration. Just as God restores us, so we too get to join Him in His restoration work in our families, in our community, all across this weary world. And you guys have done that in spades. Last week you connected and gave so much money for Change for a Dollar. It was ridiculous. And you're going to hear that story next week, and I cannot wait. So let me just say that you've been the answer to so many people's prayers. Today, I want to invite you once again to bring restoration. This time, the money that you will give will be towards the Deacons Fund, and all of that money will go to help people in our church. This last two weeks, we've given over $1,500 away to several families in our church to make sure that they can keep their lights on, they can eat, they can pay their rent, uh, and we have more needs. So people right here in Coastal Community Church, they've lost their jobs, um, their rent is due this week, they need your help. And so we have a small balance in our deacon fund right now, but our goal as a church is to spend that fund every single month. So I wanna encourage you, if you'd like to bring restoration and have all of those funds go to help people in our own church, we wanna encourage you, give online. Go to mycoastal.org give, and you can give through PayPal, uh, or you can Venmo the church directly, which is at Coastal Community Church GB. Uh, and all of, those, all of that information and ways to give is directly online. Once again, this week is giving for the Deacons Fund to see how it is that we can be an answer to people's prayers right here in our church. So each week we would read this statement together if we were together, and I wanna, I wanna read that to you as well, just as a reminder of who we are. We are disciples, and a disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. So thank you for choosing this last week and this week to come how it is that you're gonna follow Jesus. I am so grateful for each and every one of you. 
A couple of announcements. First, some, um, some real practical news. We will start the live stream on Sunday morning at 10.15 a.m. Um, that's because I, I always run over on my preaching time. So 10.15, that's at our Facebook page. So we will only be doing live streaming on our Facebook page, not our YouTube channel. I think we only had two people watching on YouTube last week, but over 100 um, coming in on Facebook. So please uh, join us. That's at 10.15 a.m. on our Facebook page. Also, want to celebrate Nick and Allison Duggan had a baby boy on Wednesday, April 1st. And so they welcomed Jetson Stephen Matthew Duggan into their family. Awesome name. And I know that Mike and Joni Stallings, their uh, Jetson's grandma and grandpa are super excited. So congratulations. Way to go. Everybody's safe and sound and happy. And we're just so excited for you. Lastly, I wanted to encourage you. You know, I know that um, the last two or three days have been pretty discouraging with our rate of infection going up and our deaths going up and our hospitalizations going up. And now our kids are not going back to school until the fall. Um, So it feels like this week is really when this incredible storm uh, is starting to surge and, and really drown us out. And we're looking at a month now in April of staying home. I wanna encourage you You and I are living in a time in which we are getting to see the entire country, the entire world, willingly, voluntarily, laying down their lives for the sake of their neighbors and friends. You know, this last year we've seen so much talk and so much evidence of how our country is ripping each other apart from liberal versus conservative uh, to Uh, whatever it looks like, whatever the divisions are, rich versus poor, uh, there has been this division that has been growing in our country. And right now what we're seeing is that our country is united. And for the sake of people that we know and that we don't know, we are sacrificing money, time, opportunity, staying at home, and suffering so that we might save lives. And if that's not evidence of God's Spirit profoundly working on this earth, I don't know what is. As Jesus says, there is no greater love than this, that a man may lay down his life for another. And that's what we're seeing, that you and I get to lay down our lives for the sake of the people who are most vulnerable in our country so that they might have a fighting chance at life. So good job. Good job staying home. Good job Try not to go out of your mind. Be encouraged. This is overwhelming evidence of the heart and character of our people, our nation, our world, but also God profoundly at work. So today we're going to start a new sermon series on the life of Joseph. Um, We've been in David for months and months and months now, and I think it's time to make a switch. And Joseph um, understood... Where? Oh dang it! Every time. Every time. We've, we've been, been in First and Seven. We've been in First and Second Samuel. You got to leave this in. We've been in First and Second Samuel, not in the Book of David. Oh my gosh! Every now time. We're going to be in the Book of Joseph. But now we're going to be in the Book of Joseph. Thank you, Matt. We're going to be in the Book of Genesis. Uh, so what we're doing is we're taking a break from First and Second Samuel. We'll come back later on to David, the rest of David's life. 
uh, but we are going to be taking a break for this time because Joseph knows intimately what it feels like to be quarantined. Joseph um, had his whole world turned upside down in an instant, and we can relate with Joseph. Author Tad Williams says that oftentimes hope is like the belly band of a saddle, right? As you set a saddle on a horse, that belly band, thin though it is, wraps around a horse, um, and it holds you upright on that horse. And if that belly band breaks, your whole world turns upside down. And Tad Williams says that's what hope is like, and Joseph understood that analogy. You see, Joseph's story is the history of God's provision when all hope is lost. It's the history of God's forgiveness when relationships are torn apart. It's the history of God's rescue when we are stuck, lost, in despair. It's the history of God's good news in salvation when circumstance and our sin messes everything up. Now, I know that next week is Easter, and for the first time in 10 years, as your pastor, we won't be together on Easter morning, and that breaks my heart. And this is the first time that for many of us, we will, I mean, for decades, we will not be in church on Easter. But you and I are going to celebrate nonetheless. We have an amazing sets of stories to share with you, stories of resurrection, stories of redemption, stories of you telling us what God has done in your life to raise you from death to life. And so we are so excited. Um, and one day we will get back together again, and I'm confident that this is what I will be like. So before we do anything else, we better pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help. We need your spirit here as we're with our families at home watching, as we're listening. God, we need your spirit. So as we breathe in, Holy Spirit, come, fill us. Speak to us. Use the power of your word and the power of the gospel to meet us right where we are. And we bind up and silence anything opposed to Jesus that would be seeking to distract or confuse or interrupt this time now in Jesus' name. Father, protect us. We love you, Jesus. We give you this time. Speak to our hearts now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, Genesis 37, chapter one, reads like this, Jacob, lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And this is the story of the family of Jacob. Now you gotta remember, right? We have Abraham and then we have Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the black sheep of the family because Jacob had deceived his brother Esau, stolen his birthright. You remember the whole story. So Isaac, who's Jacob's dad, tells Jacob, Listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. And the, the word that Isaac uses to bless Jacob he's, is he says this, Jacob, you're going to be a start of a brand new community. That Hebrew word is kahal. 
kahal um, is translated into a Greek word called ekklesia. And we translate kahal and ekklesia, the Hebrew kahal, the Greek ekklesia, into the English word church. And that word literally means a community that has been set aside for God's plans and purposes. So Jacob's 12 children would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob literally is renamed from Jacob to Israel. Israel means one who struggles or wrestles with God. And so God is going to do the impossible with Jacob's family, with Israel's family. God is going to change this crazy dysfunctional family and renew it and restore it and redeem it. Uh, author and commentator R. Kent Hughes writes this, God did not choose Abraham's family because they were a better representative of traditional family values than their pagan neighbors, unless you count favoritism and murderous envy as traditional family values. <laughs> you see, God's plan for this family seems impossible given that they're in an emotional disaster. But Moses is writing this story. Moses is putting to words the oral tradition which has been handed down. And why is Moses telling this dysfunctional story? Well, Moses is telling this story because we all need to hear this story. All of us have experienced what it's like to be an emotional, dysfunctional wreck. We can be disasters. Guess what? You're stuck at home for another month with your family. If the crazy hasn't already come out, this month it will. <laughs> but God had, has more in store for us than our disaster. And the church, while it is a worshiping community of people that have lots of issues, it is also a worshiping community that is being transformed by the, by the very presence of God himself so that our dysfunction might be healed, but it might be also the place in which we see God working miracles, in which we see death and chaos and dysfunction be actually the grounds in which Jesus brings life and hope and peace. So Jacob has 12 sons with four different wives. Remember, he got tricked into marrying Leah, whom he was not attracted to, so that he could be have his, his dream girl, Rachel. And then on top of that, Re Leah and Rachel had two maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah. And Bilhah and Zilpah, so Jacob is going to have children with all four of these women's, 12 different sons. And what Jacob did is as an old man, he finally had kids with his favorite wife, Rachel. And that favoritism that he so shows Rachel then is passed on to his children. And he favors his boys that he has with Rachel over the 10 other sons. Can you imagine? Can you imagine growing up in a house where your mom and dad loved your brother or sister more than you? And they weren't subtle about it. They were like really obvious and demonstrative. They withheld love from you and gave that to other people. 
or to their favored children. And this is the disaster Jacob creates in his own family. So we meet Joseph for the first time when he's 17 years old. Here it is, Genesis chapter 37, verse two. Joseph being 17 years old was pasturing the flock in his, with his brothers. And he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Remember, those are the two maidservants of Leah and Rachel his father's wives. So as Joseph brought a bad report, Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. So obviously already division is here. Um, number one, he's the favorite son and he's with brothers of the servants, which means that mm, that's not good, right? Already there's some division. And what does Joseph do? He brings a bad report. Now this Hebrew word for bad report in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 18, is translated as slander. I want you to understand something. Joseph, he's 17 years old, he sees something that he interprets as wrong, and what he decides to do, instead of talking to his brothers about it, he runs to dad and he slanders his brothers. Joseph is intentionally causing trouble. Verse three, now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. Remember that Jacob was like in his 60s, 70s when he and Rachel first had Joseph. So he'd been waiting all that time to finally have children with his prized wife, Rachel, whom he loved more than Leah or Bilhah or Zilpah. And so now, now you understand why. So Israel then, Jacob, made Joseph a robe of many colors. Now, that's not your technicolor dream coat. This is a royal robe. Imagine it like this silk kimono, right? <laughs> One of those cheesy silk kimonos. Um, it's not made for working. You need to understand something. When Joseph comes and tells his father about how lousy his brothers are at tending sheep or they're slouching or they're stealing or whatever it is. He slanders his brothers. And what does Jacob do? Instead of defending his other sons, instead of asking what had happened, Jacob rewards Joseph and gives him a robe. And that robe means that Joseph no longer has to work. How would you feel if your brother slandered you to your father, destroyed your reputation in your father's eyes, and then your father rewards your brother by, make, by basically saying, hey, um, Andy, you're now gonna have to work for your brother for the rest of your life. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> Obviously, let me just say this, parents, you can't favor any child. Favoritism will kill your family. And I know what you're gonna say. You're gonna say, well, <laughs> I don't do that. And that's good, that's really great. But notice the bigger picture. Jacob, has this dysfunction that he gets from his father, Isaac. See, Isaac favored one son over the other. Isaac favored Esau, Jacob's brother. 
And Jacob passes on that dysfunction. First, he's going to favor a wife, and then Jacob is going to favor a child. So let me ask you a question. What's that unwanted inheritance that you have? Maybe it's anger, maybe it's greed, maybe it's shame, maybe it's racism, maybe it's fear, whatever that is. You receive some dysfunctional behavior from your family of origin. No family is without it. Everybody gets something that they don't want. The question is, have you dealt with it? Have you talked about it? Because the thing about growing up is that you're going to say, you know what, I'm never going to be like my mom or I'm never going to be like my dad in this particular way. I'm not going to do that thing that they did to me until the day that you do. And then you slap your palm on your forehead and you say, oh my gosh, I'm exactly like my mother or I'm exactly like my father. Ah! See, what do you do with your unwanted inheritance? This is the power of the gospel. You take that thing that you're embarrassed about or that you don't want to talk about it and you bring it out into the light. And when you bring it out into the light, this is what we talked about last week with confession. When you bring it out into the light, you kill the power and shame of it. What you do is that you are saying, no, this thing is, is not going to define me. I'm going to define it. I'm going to name it. And then I'm going to forgive. I'm going to confess. I'm going to do whatever it takes in order to destroy this inheritance, which has put a stranglehold on my family's vitality. Verse 4. Jacob's family doesn't do this. But when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than anyone else, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. In the Hebrew, it's a little bit more wooden than that. It literally says they can no longer say peace or shalom to him. They were bitter. They were angry. They had a mountain of legitimate resentments against Joseph, and it was eating them up. So let me ask you a question. What do you do with your resentments? Like, you have been wounded. What are you going to do with that? And of course, Joseph doesn't make it easier for his brothers. He's about to make a bad situation even worse. Now, I want us to listen and watch as saints in your own church read to you Genesis 37, verses 5 through 11.
Okay, so <laughs> by the way, thank you guys for all of that. That was beautiful. Uh, so what just happened? Well, remember that Joseph has tattled on his brothers and he's rewarded with a royal robe, one that exempts him for works. Then this idiot teenage boy has dreams. These dreams are from God, but what does he do with those dreams? Well, first the dream is that you have these stacks of wheat, a sheave of wheat, and that Joseph is, Joseph's sheave of wheat or his life is standing upright and all of his brother's sheaves of wheat are fall down before him, right? So obviously the metaphor is clear. Joseph is supposed to rule or will be elevated above his brothers, but he already is by his father. And so what does he say? He tells his brothers the dream. And then he, which is obnoxious enough as it is, but then he has another dream and he tells them again. And so Jacob's like, son, you got to stop telling us these dreams. Like, this is ridiculous. Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept these dreams or the same in, in mind. So what do you do with people when they're acting like Joseph is, when they're being twits? What do you do with your resentments? The power of bitterness and unforgiveness is like a magnet. It locks you on to a, that other person. You start rehearsing in your minds all the ways that you write, that you are right. You assemble a jury in your brain and then you prosecute that person and you will find evidence, tidbits, scraps that you can heap on the list of accusations upon them because you are prosecuting them in your mind. And what happens is that this changes you. This is what we talked about last week with confession, right? Unconfessed sin, uh, held on to resentments, it starts changing you. You start to see life as problems. You focus on what is bad, not what is good, because you're constantly gathering evidence to prosecute someone. So you never look at the good that they're doing. You never see them as a balanced whole human being with problems and also good qualities, you only pick out what is convenient for you to prosecute them. And then all of a sudden, ha uh, this happens without you know it, without you knowing it. What, what you're doing is that your bitterness is like swallowing a poison pill, hoping that it will harm the other person. But in reality, it only harms you. It pickles you. It's like a rattlesnakes, when they're backed into a corner and they feel threatened or harmed, sometimes a rattlesnake will actually bite its own body and kill itself. That's what bitterness and resentment does. The only way out comes through forgiveness. Forgiveness is about one issue. And forgiveness is about who gets to be judge. And it's not you. To forgive is to literally walk through the steps of handing the right to judge back over to Jesus, who's the only true judge, and he's the only one capable of being kind while he is judge. So first, to forgive is to remember the real wounds that another person has caused. Every act of forgiveness carries with it a just accusation. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is always telling the truth about what another person did. 
And then second, forgiveness is letting go of the ridiculous pride that you and I have, thinking that we can do a better job of judging another person than God himself. Forgiveness is saying, God, I remember what they've done, but number two, God, I stink at doing your job of being judged. And then number three, forgiveness is literally saying out loud, being specific, just like last week with confession, being specific, saying, Jesus, I forgive this person for this specific act. I no longer am capable of judging them. That's your job, Jesus. And so I forgive them. I hand them over to you. You judge them as you see fit. Now, Joseph brothers are not going to forgive this teenage kid. And what's incredible in it is that in the middle of Joseph's arrogance and in the middle of his brother's resentment, so these are, this is their emotional dysfunction, God's will, God's plan, God's purpose is still accomplished. Let me give you a moment of hope here. Your terrible wounding, my terrible wounding, does not derail God's plan for our blessing. Not even a pandemic can stop God's good plan for you. We worship a God who takes our foolishness and out of it creates our salvation. And this is why we trust Jesus to be the judge. Only Jesus, only our Heavenly Father, only the Holy Spirit has the ability and the heart to look at our ridiculous failures and love us and forgive us and choose us. Verse 12. Now Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, here's a map for you to look. Shechem is, is, a, is where they lived. They lived. This is in the land of Canaan. Shechem was home base for them. Now, Dothan, as you can see, is north of Shechem, and that's about a 20-mile walk. And this is really important. Joseph's brothers, they know they need to take a break, right? Joseph has just been given the royal robe. He's got that silk kimono on. He's not working anymore. They got to support him. Um, they're sick and tired of Jacob favoring Joseph and believing everything that he says. And, and they want to kill him. But they just said, you know what? Let's take the sheep 20 miles north. We'll take a break from Joseph. We'll cool our heads. But what does Joseph do? Joseph goes to find his brothers. Why? I don't know. Verse 18. His brothers see him from afar, and before Joseph came near to them, they conspired against him to kill Joseph. Verse 19. Then they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. That word dreamer is actually, um, uh, in Hebrew, it means master of dreams. It's a, it's a, uh, an, a moniker that's dripping with sarcasm and hatred. Verse 20, they said, come now, let's kill him and then throw him into one of the pits. A pit would be this massive cistern uh, in the sandstone crevices of this area as water wore holes in the sandstone. It would create massive pits. So basically underground swimming pools with a very small opening. And these were, 
These cisterns were all over the place. They still are all over the place, and they're actually very important because water during the rainy season would fall, flow into them, and then they would be the source of water during the nine or ten months of dryness that the region had. And so their idea is to throw him into one of the pits. Verse 20, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. The brother's words are naked with hatred and brutality. They don't want to kill Joseph and bury him. They want to throw him into a pit and drown him and then kill him and drown him again. Um, This is brutal. One brother, Reuben, intervenes. He's got a little secret plan where he can come ahead. Um, But he argues to the brothers to not kill Joseph, just fling him into the pit. (laughs) Reuben's Reuben's mercy is that Joseph would starve and then drown. Um, Verse 23, something else happens. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. So they beat the tar out of him. They took the robe off of him. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. So they've just tossed him down into a 15-foot. They've just thrown him down 15 feet, right? They chucked him off the top of a roof. Joseph, his battered, bloody, naked body is lying at the bottom of this sandstone cistern. And he's having a bad day and it's about to get worse. His cries of mercy and for help go unanswered. Instead, his brothers do something altogether cruel and simple. Verse 25, then his brothers sat down to eat. (laughs) Evidently, it's a lot of work trying to kill someone and it makes you hungry. And so Joseph's brothers are eating their burgers with Joseph screaming in the background, begging for mercy but they see something in the distance. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites come in from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own fresh. And his brothers listened to him. So what is Judah saying? He has a solution. Hey, instead of dealing with the guilt of murdering our brother in cold blood, why don't we make some money off him and sell him into slavery? And all of his brothers said, oh, that's a pretty good idea. Verse 28, then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. 20 pieces of silver or 20 shekels of silver today, that's worth about 200 bucks. And back in that day, it would have been enough money to feed a small family for several months. Look, maybe you and I can relate to Joseph right now, maybe a lot. See, Joseph never expected to be beaten, robbed, thrown into a cistern, and then sold into slavery and taken to a foreign country, Egypt. And none of us thought that 2020 would feature a global pandemic and 30% unemployment, and the entire world would shut down for months on end. None of us expected to end up where we are. 
in, in a land, in a situation that looks nothing like it did a few short months ago. Pastor and theologian Ian Duguid writes this, God's redemptive plans do not lead us around conflict. Instead, his perfect plan takes us right through the eye of the storm, where our dysfunction and sin, along with that of our families and friends, is on full and tragic display, so that the gospel of his powerful grace and sovereign mercy can be equally powerfully on display. See, the essential part of being a Christian is to, an essential part of being a Christian is to set aside the notion that you and I have a better plan than God. When we judge God as harsh and cruel for allowing tragedy or harm to come to us, when I judge God harsh and cruel for allowing a tragedy to come to me, what I do is that I miss out. I miss out on the reality that God is always working no matter what. I miss out on the reality that God never wanted this harsh and bad thing to happen. It happened. Whether it was by random chance or someone's choice or the weather, it happened. I miss out on the reality that God is actually working in the middle of it. You see, I, I mean, I can relate with Joseph in a small sense. I grew up in a dysfunctional family. I had a dad that was deep into his addiction of drugs and alcohol. I had mom who was doing the best that she could with the tools that she had to hold our family together. And there was division and discord and loneliness. And, and I was never grateful for it at the moment. I was too young to be mad at God while I was enduring it, but when I was older, 17, 18, 19, 20, I was furious at God for letting me go through all of that. But what has God done in the middle of all of this tragedy and heartache and dysfunction? Well, number one, every single one of us in our family now know and love Jesus. He's used his very presence to not only redeem us in the middle of our heartache, but he's also given us tools that we would have never gotten unless we had gone through it. Like I would have, I would have made a lousy pastor if my life had just been hunky-dory and perfect. But no, I can relate. I can relate with almost every single one of you because I've been through your brokenness. You want to talk about addiction? Check, I got that one done. You want to talk about dysfunction? Got it. Know how to deal with that. You want to deal with divorce? Yes, been through that. You want to deal with uh, insane codependency? Yes, let's talk about that. Now, what about greed? What about sorrow? What about death? What about grief? Oh man, I know it all. You see, my life, your life, is just like Joseph and his brothers. It tells the story that we so desperately need to hear the story worth telling, that Jesus is gracious to sinners, that Jesus takes our darkness and out of it creates light, that Jesus takes our death and from it brings life. Jesus does the impossible with impossible people. Jesus saves stiff-necked and stubborn knuckleheads like myself so that you might go, well, if Jesus can save Andy, then certainly he could save me because that guy's got problems. Verse 31, 
Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors back to their father and said, look what we found. Please identify, is this your son's robe or not? And Jacob identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Verse 34, then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. He rips his clothes, he puts on burlap underwear, and he grieves. He's lost his boy. He's lost his favorite son. This story from beginning to end in chapter 37 is a hot mess. I mean, Jacob is a hot mess as he favors Joseph and withholds love from his other 10 sons or 11 sons. Joseph is a hot mess as he brags about what God is going to do through him and in him. His brothers are a hot mess. The older brothers are a hot mess as they hate Jacob or Joseph and hate Jacob too. And they beat up Joseph and then they sell him into slavery after conspiring to kill him. And believe it or not, all of these characters point to Jesus. How? We'll take the older brothers. Now Jesus isn't like the older brothers. He's actually the true and better older brother. Look, when, when we were like Joseph, when you and I were rubbing our rebellion and arrogance in Jesus' face, taking his name in vain, willfully disobedient, spurning his love, not praying, throwing our fist up at God, Jesus didn't harbor resentment against us. Jesus didn't choose to be bitter or angry at us because we've hurt him. Jesus didn't throw us into the bottom of an, un, uh, of an inescapable well or sell us into slavery. Jesus, while we were his enemies, as it says in Romans 8, while we were his enemies, Jesus chose to die for us even when we were dead set against him. Well, how about Jacob, Joseph's father? Is Jesus like Jacob? Actually, no, he's the true and better Jacob because he doesn't favor me more than he favors you. And he doesn't favor your neighbor more than he favors you. No, Jesus favors each one of us. The love and mercy of Jesus equally covers all of his children. And, and the work on the cross that Jesus has done isn't just for me, and it's not just for you. How does it go in John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You see, you are not forgotten. It might feel like right now you've been overlooked. You're not. You're not too much for Jesus. He adores you. Well, how about Joseph himself? Is Jesus like Joseph? Actually, he's the true and better Joseph. Because he willingly chose to be thrown into a pit for you and I. <laughs> and Jesus did have a royal robe. And that royal robe wasn't covered in pretend blood. It was covered in his blood. 
so that you and I might be saved. See, here's the good news of the gospel. When you and I stand before God, we put on the royal robe of Jesus covered in his precious blood. And we say to God, the only way that I can stand before you is because Jesus has been perfect for me. It's because Jesus has died for me. It's his royalty, it's his blood, which covers all of my sin, all of my dysfunction. That is the good news of the gospel. And because we get to wear Jesus' royal robe and covered in that which makes us clean, his work on the cross for you and I, that's what we get to give away. That's why we forgive. That's why we love the twits in our life. That's because Jesus has loved you and I first. So brothers and sisters, this week, in the middle of your quarantine, you're going to have an opportunity to forgive. Be specific. Remember what they've done. But forgive because you've been forgiven first. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much for dying in our place. Thank you so much for setting aside your royalty, for choosing to forgive me. I've been full of resentment and anger and mistrust. Me who favors, me who boasts and is arrogant. Thank you, Jesus. And I gladly put on your royal robe. I gladly stand under the banner of your love and proclaim that I am forgiven and loved and washed clean, not by what I can do, but only by what you've done for me, Jesus. So I choose this day to forgive. And I pray for my friends right now they would choose the same. Would you guard them and protect them this week, this most holy of weeks? As we look to you, Jesus, of what you've done for us, we trust you. We pray your protection on this weary world. We pray for healing, for a vaccine, for protection over our healthcare workers. Jesus, we need your help. Please, Lord, come. Relieve this heavy weight. And in the meantime, Jesus, we trust that you will do your incredible work. We love you. We're so grateful for you. We pray these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Now receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. That's his delight in you. And give you the peace that passes all understanding. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. We'll see you at the live stream at 1015. Take care and God bless.